Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium, episode 48. In this episode, we continue our interview with Father Terry Ehrman, the Center for Science, Theology, and Human Flourishing at the University of Notre Dame. We start off this section of the interview by segueing from a description of the issues raised by Father Ehrman's class on science, theology, and creation into a more general meditation on what it means to be human being doing science. The world is right currently embedded in a scientific matrix, scientific mm-hmm. atmosphere that's reductionistic and materialistic, and science is going to tell us what is true. Mm-hmm. And so in my class, I make the distinction between science and scientism. Mm-hmm. And scientism is where science is the only pathway to truth, and it's um, it goes from science, right, is a method that doesn't, in the first instance, use or look to God for an answer. It just looks for natural causes to explain mm-hmm. how does lightning work, and you just want to figure out how do the charges go through clouds and, yeah. and such. You're not looking for, well, well, God does it. Well, what are the natural causes by which this takes place? So that's just fine and good, right? That's the method of science. There's a box in which it operates. There's the domain and range mm-hmm. of it, what it can study, what it can't study. Yeah. But the error is a philosophical jump then to scientism to say... And there's nothing else. There's All there is is matter. There's nothing beyond matter. There's no God. There's nothing immaterial. And that becomes a metaphysical naturalism, that Mm -hmm. metaphysically all that exists is nature. Mm -hmm. And so metaphysical naturalism is not proper to science. Methodological naturalism, right, this method of nature is, but it's a philosophical error to say then, if all I'm studying is nature, therefore all that exists is nature, is yeah. a philosophical mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah. what I try and impress upon my students. I'll ask them, does, does science lead to God, away from God, or nothing, or something in, in between? And, and I think it's, to the extent that you can abstract what science is, right? because it is just an abstraction itself, people mm-hmm. investigate the world using certain tools and certain methods, and you bring a certain philosophical view of the world with you. And if you're Richard Dawkins, you're bringing an atheistic worldview, and you're going to say, well, science doesn't lead anywhere. It just reconfirms my atheism. Right. A, a right. person of faith, you're going to say, well, no, this this, yeah. this, this enhances my faith. It increases right. the wonder of the microscopic and the telescopic. And, yeah. Um, but I think just yeah. as a method itself, it's, it's neutral. It doesn't lead to or away from God. Yeah. In and of itself. Now, yeah. science itself can only operate on certain presuppositions. We're talking about the fundament, the fundamental. Yeah. What's the fundamental presuppositions of science? The world is real. Right. right? Science cannot prove the world is real. You just take that on faith, yeah. mm-hmm. that the world is intelligible. Yeah. Right? That's a presupposition, a philosophical presupposition. Uh, the truth is worth pursuing. All these things are the yeah. presuppositions of science that every scientist takes on faith. They have to presume it to be true, and they cannot yeah. prove it in any way in a scientific fashion. Yeah. And so yeah. that just points to, but if you're a believer, and a Christian believer at that, and say, well, if everything's created in and through God's logos, his word, his reason, his understanding, mm-hmm. his wisdom, it makes sense why the world is real, intelligible, and worth investigating. Yeah. So the best place for science is faith, yeah. in the context of faith, because it makes, faith gives an answer to why science can even do what it does. Yeah. A careful kind of faith that's not uh, too too caught up in you know, one's one's own impression or one's sort of tribal, sub-tribal, you know, idea of what's already the case, and I must, you know, shove further observations into that matrix right. to let God tell us how creation actually is by actually going out and looking at it. Right. But do some of those students that you talk with uh, have uh, life stories about how 
something about uh, their interest in science did drive them away from religion? Oh, sure. They're, religion? So the, their final, so in these weekly submissions, mm-hmm. they have to reveal what their view of God and the universe is. Because I'll ask them, like, where did the universe come from? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so they'll, they'll write, right, whether they're a believer or not, or they're an atheist or whatever. So that's where the first place where I get it is some of that. And then in their final paper, it's more of a biographical integration with what we've done in the course mm-hmm. um, and to relate those things together. And so students will write, I was raised Catholic, but then in high school I read Darwin and I became an atheist. Mm-hmm. And it's just baffling to me. Um, but after taking this class, like two people that identify themselves as atheists, the first time I taught the science, theology, and creation class, both mm-hmm. said, after taking this class, I now consider myself an agnostic. I'd like to believe, but I'm not there yet. Because there's more than just yeah. an intellectual... Yeah. Uh, I think I've removed intellectual obstacles from them. But there's yeah. there's more to faith than just just what one thinks about science and the yeah. universe. And, yeah. But it gives them a sense of who God is. And, and most people have a very deficient notion of God, I think. That, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's not... I think a lot of people have this view that God is just bigger and more powerful than we are. Right. Um, right, and this is Richard Dawkins' view that yeah, oh, he, very much. So. He rejects yeah. uh, Woden and Thor and the and all these things, these, these mythical gods, but they're just a part of the universe, right? They're not the source of the universe. Right. Like, as God is the creator of the universe, right? And that God's not another thing in the universe, right? God's yeah. more of a verb than he is a noun. We can't even use language properly to speak about God because God's prop- not properly a thing yeah. about which we can speak and even have a concept yeah. of. And so yeah. that's the God worth worshiping. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not some, as one of the theology professors here would say, John Cavadini, you know, he uses the example of um, Godzilla. Right? There's right. this notion that people have a God as Godzilla, that he's just bigger, <laughs> more powerful than, yes. than yes, we are. Exactly. Right? And he has Godzilla. a finer pair of tweezers that he can, you know, manipulate whatever event at whatever scale. Yeah, so it's, and yeah. so just get the sense that God is, um, and because of God's transcendent, yeah. God can be imminent in all things, and God is the cause of being. And so God's yeah. the primary cause of all things that exist, yeah. but God creates things to have their own causative powers. That they, yeah. A basswood tree, if you want to come to campus in late June, come, because the basswood trees are flowering, and it's mm-hmm. an amazing aroma. Mm-hmm. And part of their nature is to do that. Well, what's the cause of that basswood tree mm-hmm. emitting that aroma? A botanist can tell you what that is. Yeah. But a theologian can tell you what that is. Well, God's doing it. But the tree's also doing it. They're both doing it. Both are right. necessary. God couldn't cause the flowering without the flower, mm-hmm. um, for the most part. Right? That's the nature God created. That's the ordinary means of how God operates in, in yeah. nature. He, yeah. Primary causes, what we call secondary causes. And so scientists study secondary causes. They study natural causes. Yeah. But those natural causes only exist because of a more fundamental primary yeah. causation of God giving it existence. But it's... Mm-hmm. And that's what creation is, giving existence. And so there's no scientist at the University of Notre Dame as a scientist who studies creation. Mm-hmm. All they study are secondary causes. Yeah. Now, you can be a person of faith and be a scientist and understand the primary cause, but that's not going to take place in your laboratory. No. Um, yeah. No. So. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. yeah. That, that sense of awe, though, at watching, because, of course, those secondary causes are arranged into an amazingly intricate hierarchy. Right, you're in the <laughs> harmony. We just... Before we had class canceled on Wednesday, our class on Monday was reading a book that's um, about creation, and each one is a different chapter. The goodness of creation, the beauty of creation, the sacramentality of creation, etc. And so the beauty of creation was on Monday, and mm-hmm. the author speaks about four different kinds of beauty. There's 
the effective, right? You, you watch a sunset or you see Niagara Falls or you see the moon this morning, right? And there's just an immediate kind of mm-hmm. emotional affective reaction. Yeah. Then she says there's the affective cognitive. And so you're somebody like St. Albert the Great, the patron saint of natural scientists, and he studies, he looks at and observes antlion larvae as yeah. they dig their... They're, they live at the end of they dig out a conical depression in the sand and they bury themselves in it with these big tusks and when yeah. ants stumble into it and the, the slope of the angle is such that they slide down and the ant lion will grab them. Yeah. Or if they try and escape, the ant lion will flip rocks at it. Right. And <laughs> tumble it down again. And so it's just, he was just amazed. But, so that's yeah. more of you're observing closely, right? That's the yeah. cogn- cognitive part. And then there's just cognitive itself, right? Just how do you study intellectually something that exists? So, a fun example that I found is as we're doing this moon project, it's like, well, what effect does the moon have upon ecological processes? Mm-hmm. So one was about lions are more likely to attack humans when the phase of the moon is where it's darker. Okay. So just to note, if you're going out to the Serengeti, go with a full moon, you're, you're less likely moon, to be attacked. Yeah. Werewolves um, are better than lions. Yes. <laughs> there's there's organisms that live in the water column of a lake and they'll migrate up and down depending on the light, yeah. those kind of things. But then there's this, the moon wobbles a bit and it's, in its orbit around the Earth, and it takes an 18.6-year cycle where it goes, it's not just on a flat plane, it kind of goes above zero yeah. and above below zero, and that takes 18.6 years yeah. to complete that cycle. And some ecologists related that to populations of salt marsh mosquitoes that seem to be following this 18.6-year pattern. <laughs> really? Right, and that's only cognitive. You can only do that yeah. through years of study. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And then Very careful statistical analysis of your data and yeah. all of that sort of thing. And so that's just yeah. all that it's all caught up in the beauty of the harmony of how do yeah. things interact and uh-huh. and and, and the, then the incomprehensibility of the universe, right? Just it's we will never fully be able to understand it. Right? Those are the four categories that this author had to think about. How do we have beauty? But how do we rediscover that? Because we've eliminated God from natural causes. I asked yeah. my students when it snowed the other day, when you saw the lunar eclipse the day before classes started, did yeah. you praise God? Or did you just say, wow, that's really cool, and you know things about astronomy? Or did it lead you, as the Psalms do, to praise God yeah. for what is? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's what I try and get my students, how to recover that yeah. um, and to bring them in together with God is not disconnected from what's going on in that lake or in the tree because God's already there. God's not in any physical way there, but through his power, his presence, his essence, God is the, mm-hmm. creating it at every moment. Yeah. Creation is not something that happened 13.7 billion years ago. It's going on right now, giving us existence and yeah. everything existence. Yeah. That's wow. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And we yeah. can repeat those, we repeat such examples ad infinitum with all, all the different branches of science that we're acquainted with. And we've uh, been talking a lot in recent episodes about uh, uh, psychology and neuro, uh, bi- uh, neurophysics and neurobiology. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's a field that a lot of young people are choosing to go into. Now, uh, physio- um, psychology, uh, neurobiology, right? But it seems to be a source of the answers to the angst and the depression and the and the uh, you know the uh, just the, the serious uh, in some ways a source, mental, in some ways a cause. And, and of, right, it's not just mental. In some ways an answer, in some ways a cause of the angst and depression. But yes. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but in any event, they see it as a concrete and kind of final solution, a final answer that is to. Uh, to what ails them, but what you're saying is, oh no, you have to look a lot uh, uh, deeper and a lot higher, uh, to use yeah. the metaphor, yeah. right, so uh, to, to solve that. Right. So an image that I use is, I love this. Bonaventure is very descriptive. Saint Bonaventure, 
mm-hmm. the 13th century, and he describes creation as a carbon dei, a song or poem of God. Mm-hmm. That you can't under, you, just as you can't understand a poem until you've read the whole thing through. Right? We can't completely understand creation except until we know its beginning and its its end, which is all in God. But it's by contrast, the carbon dei, right? This beauty or song of of creation of God mm. with what I call strepitus naturae, right? This noise of nature. And I, strepitus, if you ever participated in the, the, the Holy Week, the Holy Thursday, uh, Holy Thursday, the, yeah, the, the tenebrae service, the tenebrae right. service yeah. there's, it's all oh, the church is dark and there's one candle left. And then mm-hmm. what we do here in our name, there's just this clamor of banging. Yeah, bang Some on. places it's just like one big stroke, but it's, um, Indicating like this triumph of darkness over the light, or chaos sometimes over order. chaos over order, and and then the, then the light returns right from the darkness. This one light of Christ, right? The, the light mm-hmm. conquers the darkness, and so I think right. So much of our culture is that we have an unnecessarily dim metaphysical view of reality that yes. comes from this scientism and this metaphysical naturalism and this. Loss of who God is as creator and how to, how God does act in the world, that they're not competitors, natural causes and divine causes right. are not competitors, that they, they're, yeah. they interact and work together. Yeah. And so. Favorite, favorite theme of uh, Bishop Barron. Yeah, so it's, I mean, he's very much a Thomist yeah. in these yeah. areas. And yeah. so I think that so much of humanity is, is this alienation from ourselves, right? There's, we have evolution or we're, oh, we're just another sort of, um, right. The cosmos. We're we're not the right. right? Um, <laughs> we're just one little speck. And this is where Stephen Barr's book is wonderful. With this ancient physics yeah. and modern yeah. faith, and he says, you know, the universe has been expanding. And if you're going to need, what do we need for life? Well, we need these higher elements, iron and yeah. such. Those only come about from second generations of stars. stars. Yeah. And in order to get the second generation of stars, you're going to need a couple. Yeah. Several billion years. And yeah. if the universe is, space is expanding over eight billion years, it's gotta be so big. Yeah. So for the universe to be so big and so old can only be the case, um, if life is gonna exist, it has to be that old and that big. Yeah. And so this yeah. is a very, it's wonderful, I use G.K. Yeah. Chesterton's quote about people who say that this, this is a vast, impersonal universe. Mm. And he says, how can you even comment on the size of the universe? There's just one of them. Right. Know <laughs> so how how big should a universe be? So why not? Why don't yeah. we just say it's a small, cozy little universe? Right. Yeah, yeah. And so it's what kind of philosophical or yeah. view do we bring to reality? Yeah. And I think if now it's not to say I didn't go through some of this when I was in junior high. I got this cosmology book, and it has a picture of the solar system and a square, and then that square is. Pr- yeah. Projected into another square that's the, the galaxy. The galaxy and that galaxy is projected into a cluster, cluster of galaxies into the whole universe. And all of a sudden mm-hmm. you're just like, well, yeah. I'm really small. Yeah. But yet I'm still created in the image likeness of God and God's creating right. me at every moment. Right. And. And somehow, and somehow it, these bundles of, of neurons are able to participate in some sort of process of understanding something about this. And then, so we get into the, what you brought up. Yeah. The, the neurobiology and the and yeah. aspects of soul and mind. And, and when we talk about evolution, you know, there's this, when the human person comes about, is there a sharp line? Is there a gradual line? How does, how does our thought and things that I've read is that I don't think that thought is a material process at all. And I think that, uh, I draw a lot upon David Brain, who sadly died about two years ago. He was a mm. philosopher over in Aberdeen, Scotland. Okay. Uh, Thomist and convert to Catholicism. And he would write about, we, 
we're linguistic animals and we think in a medium of words. Yeah. And that uh, Dominican priest who's also died the last decade or so, Herbert McKay, would say that there is no organ of thought in the body. The brain is, an, is not an organ of thought. It's an organ, it's an organ of integration. It's an organ of perception. But we don't think with our brain, per se. Right? We're thinking with our words. And this is an immaterial process. Um, to have abstract thought is, is immaterial. And so there, there's evidence from philosophy and language studies that, that even those things can point to there's more to us than just matter. Mm-hmm. That I'm not just a brain, you know, the bat thinking, yeah. you know, it's a, the, how, how we actually think about what thought is. And I think that's very interesting. Yeah. What we tried to get funded but failed was to bring together a theologian, uh, artificial intelligence mathematician, engineer, mm-hmm. and a, um, psychologist mm-hmm. and to have them come together and have a conversation about thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sadly that didn't, didn't happen. I would love to yeah. have that conversation because it's, you have people like Daniel Dennett, the philosopher, and he says, you know, our consciousness is just an illusion and, right. And, uh, well, you know, which of course demands the, the uh, I believe it's uh Augustinian response, something's being diluted. I think Descartes probably says the same thing, but yeah. So someone's being diluted. What, who's that? (laughs) Other than me. Yeah. So there's all these attempts to diminish who we are. One of the things I tell my, ask my students is just go on this trajectory. Like presenting that, okay, there's, if, if there is no God, then matter has to be self-existent. There, there can't be any cause for matter. Matter has to be an uncaused cause because there, yeah. you can't have this retroactive progression backwards in time for causation. There's got you can make rungs on a ladder go ever upward, but there's got to be a base to the ladder. Yeah, and yeah. so matter. That's the point. I've never actually seen them come into conflict about it, but I, you know, I read Father Spitzer's book about the new proofs for the existence yeah. of God, and he actually makes that that point that you just made. That there is that in fact mathematically you can't even go backward to infinity, but Aquinas thought we could, and so far as I know, Stephen Barr thinks we can. That that, that that's not logically incoherent. What would be logically incoherent is not ha- is to have that hierarchy of causes mm-hmm. all the way back to right. you know you can't have an infinite hierarchy of causes right. extra temporally, so to speak. Yeah, there's got to be a first domino. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> but but that's 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 on my list of things you know that I like. I need to go back and read that sooner rather than later. Is is what. The mathematical results that um, Father Spitzer was was quoting, citing regarding, does it really make sense to have a, a negative infinity, a backward infinity, like mm. you're talking about? And so, if we take matter is self-existent, it just is, and matter is going to arrange itself in certain ways to give us galaxies, and that's going to give us mm-hmm. animals and plants and give us us. And can matter give us intellect and freedom? Or is it just predetermined and all of that? Versus God creates the world in his love and his wisdom, his goodness, his mercy. Creates us in his image and likeness. Because on the first example, right, from matter to us, you have people like uh, Richard Dawkins who say, you know, there's, there's no point to our existence. There is no good or evil. Mm-hmm. And our life is pretty much... Right, it's interesting that these new atheists pretty much embrace a Christian morality apart from like sexual ethics and, and just, um, but the real atheists like 
Nietzsche, right? It's like there's, n- there's nihilism, right? You end up yeah. in nothing, and there's so, so there's just this dim view of like my mad, my life has no meaning. Yeah. Um, versus, if we hold what is good and true about what what do we think about humanity and growing up in families and there's yeah. love and goodness and yeah. all these things are essential to who we are. And on the other, just material way, all those things disappear. There is no good or evil, right? And all the things we hold dear about humanity is just an illusion mm-hmm. and it's a falsehood and a deception somehow. And so it's like, well, which of these do you think makes more sense? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. yeah. And to see that, and to see that the, the, there, there is no artificial burden of proof on one side or the other at the, at the very least they are intellectually, you know, you know, you could go either way right. at the very least. Right. Um, yeah, but, that, but it behooves you to choose. Right, it behooves <laughs> you to choose. But it's, I mean, so much of it simply goes on the, well, you know, the burden of proof is on people of faith. I mean, there's that great quotation, I think, from the 18th century, and I don't remember whether it was Diderot or D'Alembert, some, some French Enlightenment figure talking about, you know, we should not, we should not believe in any testimony of a miracle because we know what they the, we know what the laws of physics are. And I remember that it finally, it finally slid home in my mind. We know what the laws of physics are by observation. <laughs> I mean, in these same Enlightenment thinkers, you know, to, to, to talk about astronomy and, and planets and so forth for again for a moment, I remember reading, I believe it was like Thomas Jefferson, a great Enlightenment figure, mm-hmm. of course, um, talking about these credulous Frenchmen who believed that they had seen rocks fall from the sky. Well, of course, we know that's crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, we know that's... No, wait, never mind. Um, and one of those um, early early meteorites, of course, happens to be from Mars, which is kind of cool. But, uh, but yeah, it's... You, you, yeah, that's you, you can wall yourself off inside that tribe where right. you, know, you believe that you make sense and everyone else needs to prove themselves and to so, you. And so what I'm trying to do in my course is... Is I think what St. Basil the Great was doing back in the 4th century, mm. and that uh, perhaps unwittingly, I don't know if Francis is aware of what I see as the connections between him and St. Basil, mm-hmm. but Francis has this beautiful line in Laudato Si that talks about a serene attentiveness mm-hmm. to the creator and creation. Mm-hmm. And that's what the Tree Project is about. Mm-hmm. That's what the Moon Project is about. Mm-hmm. But Basil the Great, as did many of his contemporaries at the time, they would write theological works on the six days of creation, mm-hmm. uh, the hexameron in Latin, yeah. the six days. And in that, he talks about scriptures not written as a science book. He Basil, in the fourth century. Basil, in the fourth century. Yeah. He's saying in Moses... In dialogue with pagans and other people who... He knew the best science know. of the day. Like He said, well, yeah. Moses was not giving us whether the earth was 180,000 stadia, whatever unit that was, yeah. in circumference. Right? right? He knew the world was round. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he wants to wean his audience from their fascination with what we create, what we manipulate. Going to scurrilous plays, going to horse races, yeah. all these things. Today would be being on the internet, right. watching Artificial reality. Hulu, <laughs> right. Fortnite, I mean, all these different Fortnite. video games yeah, and things. There you go. There you go. And he says, I want to give you a guided tour of the amphitheater of creation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what my class is doing, right? They're out in yeah. the world with the tree and the moon project. Mm-hmm. And so they're in the amphitheater, but it needs to be a guided tour, right? They have to know who God is as mm-hmm. God reveals himself and how we reflect upon that theologically, right? So that's the guided part that is the classroom components. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's setting them forth into the world to how to look and observe and be attentive and and 
um, just to be with creation. Mm-hmm. And so to have this and to have this rediscovery of the world that they miss because they they don't go outside. Right. Yeah. And they're they're locked in a an electronic virtual world, right? Yeah. We go th- how to have yeah. a virtual presence versus the real presence, right? To think about the Eucharist, right? right. Um, so that's what my class is basically about: is is mm-hmm. how do we have this rediscovery of the Creator and um, the rejoice and to praise Him, right? Because it's that's the high point of the six seven days of creation story is the Sabbath, right? Is to mm-hmm. praise God. Everything's directed there, and to go back just to creation and redemption. Right. I asked my students just the other day, why is it a seven day story to tell this story mm-hmm. of creation? Eventually they'll come to with some prodding. Well, it's a week, right? There's seven days in a week. This is a, yeah. lit- a liturgical setting. Yeah. The Jews are already worshiping on the Sabbath when they're writing the story in the sixth century yeah. BC, most likely in Babylon and when they're in exile for 50 years. And they start to reflect upon who God is as the creator. And they write this story, divinely inspired story in a, context of a week and we as far as we know the jews created the seven-day week mm-hmm. there is no mesopotamian antecedent to the seven-day week before the jews the Hellenists, the Hellenists Greek, had a or... planetary week but i think that's somewhat later okay and so it seems like the week comes from the jews that comes from the sabbath and that becomes the framework to tell the story of creation yeah and so there's a logic there's a creation and redemption are going together. Redemption being worship and, and what humans do. and But then just in the text itself, how many, I ask my students, they've read this thing tens of times. Like how many times does the author say, and then God said, let there be X or Y or Z? Mm-hmm. Uh, three, seven, ten. So it's ten yeah. times. Mm. And Cardinal Ratzinger makes this point, right? It's not happenstance because there's ten something else's in the Old Testament, right? The Ten Commandments, wow. right. the Decalogue, the ten words, yeah. And so our moral life, our life in yeah. uh, with one another and with God is guided by a law, just as these ten words that God speaks to bring forth creation is there's a grammar, there's a logic, a logos, the mm-hmm. word in Greek. Um, creation and redemption are going together. And then to even make it more exciting, when Moses is given the commandments in the book of Exodus to create the tabernacle, the tent where they're going to worship, right? The priests go into the holy place and the high priest in the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant is once a year. There is a direct correspondence. There are seven speeches that God has to Moses. Well, there's seven days in creation. Mm. Moses blesses, God blesses. Mm. Moses does this, God does this. And there's just, and if you those seven speeches, they correspond. Now you need to know Hebrew, which I don't know. I'll trust the authors of these articles that I read that they correspond directly to the seven days of creation. Mm-hmm. And so what's being told is that just as the priests and the people are to be with the tent worshiping God, so are humans to be in this cosmic temple of creation, mm-hmm. right? So that we're mm-hmm. these priests of creation that just as we are worshiping and following the law, and this also comes up in the Genesis chapter two, to till and keep yeah. the garden those words in Hebrew have to do with work and worship yeah. and keeping the law, keeping the mandate of the law. And so just as you keep the law, you're to keep yeah. this world in which we live, right? Ecologically, right? The, mm-hmm. And this goes into my class I teach now, right? Theology and ecology, that our relationship to the natural world mm-hmm. and our care for it is Pope St. John Paul II said, it's not accidental to Christianity, but it's intrinsic to our discipleship. It's caring for yeah. this world in which we live, right? Because yeah. God has given it to us. It's not, yeah. it's, it's, our dominion 
is to be tillers and keepers and to cultivate and to care for. Yeah. And to, yeah. Um, yeah. I wonder if that connection between cultus to till and cultus to worship is came from Latin. Was it was in Latin prior to Christianity, or whether it hmm. whether it bled over from uh, from trying to translate the Old Testament? Yeah, it's interesting. interesting. Yeah. And if God uh, creates all of these connections constantly, it really behooves us not only to have the wonder to see that God's behind it, but also to have the scientific knowledge that can kind of parse these connections so that we get to know God better. Is that a that seems to be like I science can't, driving? I can't help closer. thinking that yeah, that there is some way in which God is continuing to reveal himself through the fact that you know, through the things that we're learning. You know, I mm-hmm. I, I just can't I just can't you know, if if God is being and that we're learning more about what it is for material things to be, however indirect and you know non-essential, not to be compared with Christian revelation, but nevertheless we're learning. And something. this was this was present with right, science. The word science wasn't coined until like 1833, really, really? as uh, such by yeah. William Huell. And so science, as we know it, really didn't come around until the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So when you had Galileo and Descartes. They never, would have never have called themselves a scientist. They called themselves natural philosophers. Yeah. They studied the natural world. And yeah. intrinsic to their study was a praise of God, that what they're doing is glorifying God and helping to yeah. understand how he's created. Yeah. And all that gets lost in the 19th century, primarily through, there's lots of evidence um, for this in terms of the growing atheism and, and mm-hmm. naturalism, but also there's particular books that were written uh, by Andrew Dixon White. In particular, he was the first president of Cornell University, and he writes this book, The History of the Warfare of Science and Religion. And and historians of science and philosophers of science point to that this is part of the beginnings. This is really the foundations for this myth of this conflict between science and faith is is written in these books. Mm -hmm. And it just gets perpetuated since then. It's like the myth of... Columbus being one of the few people that thought the world was round in the 15th century. Everybody right. knew the world was round. Uh-huh. Eratosthenes calculated to a very high degree of precision how far you know, so, around the world was. So yeah. BC, the Greeks, I talked about yeah. St. Basil in the 4th century, Thomas Aquinas, the first question of his Summa Theologia is one of the articles talks about we can know the world is round by this by these reasons, right? It's, right. It's, wow. I mean, the 13th century, people knew it was round. Like, where yeah. does this myth come very from? Much knew, yeah. And I yeah. suspect it comes from some of this... I mean conflict yeah. model that, that yeah. arises yeah. in the 19th century. I mean, century. I, I think some of it is, is, is a kind of adolescent, like the modern world is an adolescent rebelling against its parents, the medieval world, and, and attributing all kinds of terrible things to it right. that weren't true. Because, because, because the medieval world disappoint. I mean, that, and that is the problem. And that's why I'm glad that the Catholic, the Society of Catholic Scientists has started the gold mass. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and I brought it to Notre Dame. So the gold mass is like other colored masses in the sense yeah. of the red mass for right. lawyers, the legal profession, the white mass is for physicians, blue mass they do here at Notre Dame for firefighters and, and police and such. Gold is the color for science. If you get your tassel, your hood, and oh, a okay. doctorate in science, it's, it's gold. Yeah. And so the gold mass is on typically on November 15th for the feast day of St. Albert the Great, the patron saint mm-hmm. of scientists. And so what we do here at Notre Dame is mm-hmm. I presided and preached in the basilica. We have a mass that's followed by a reception and then a talk by a prominent Catholic scientist, and just mm-hmm. to bring together worshiping, speaking about faith and reason, and then giving a lecture mm-hmm. um, on some topic of science, but relating it to faith. And so it's just a, 
I'd love it to become more and more a signature event on campus that people look forward to every yeah. November 15th yeah. or, or yeah. close to that day, uh, depending yeah. on when it falls during the week, to yeah. to just try and recover. <laughs> how, Probably not a Saturday. He's not going to work on a football yeah. weekend or Saturday <laughs> yeah, yeah, or Sunday, yeah. so yeah. it's just going to be during the weekday. Yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah. That yeah. kind of thing. So it's just to bring together yeah. uh, what we do is... That's great. Yeah. And to think that all of this wonderment of connectedness you kind of sensed as an eight-year-old just it was it came naturally to it to a right no yes i mean i I was always interested in science always interested in faith and would always read about how they always pursue how they fit together and and also i just looking back at the my parish where i grew up saint lawrence which closed down and is now a, a different parish but you know the the church building was a part of the school itself and i think just having this like the school was just a long line and then mm-hmm. in between the seventh and eighth grade were here and the fifth and sixth down below were yeah. there and so you had this vestibule in between so just i think that connection that what you're studying here is not disconnected from yeah. when you're going to celebrate the eucharist and have mass yeah. and pray to god and so faith and yeah. reason just in that physical structure they're all together yeah yeah um that is a great emphasis well, well, we really appreciate you making the time. I know that we both have uh, things to do here very soon. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was really great yeah, to have this conversation. You, yeah, it was always yeah. fun to yeah. talk about what one likes. Yeah. 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 God and what yes. God has made. It would be yes. nice to more, get more people to like all of that. All of those things. All of those things. Yeah. So, Thank you. Yeah, we really appreciate it. This has been another episode of That's So Second Millennium with me, Paul Geesting, geologist and intellectual pilgrim, and my co-host, the journalist and consultant, Bill Schmidt. Be sure to check us out at tssm.podbean.com. We hope you subscribe and leave us a review via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. As always, thanks for listening.